The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Joe is from England. You'll soon discover if you haven't heard before. He studied uh, both at the universities of Birmingham and Manchester and came to Canada about eight years ago uh, with RZIM, where he served as the director. Um, And he uh, has been here, uh, the founding pastor of Westminster Chapel for close to three years now. It's been two and a half, I guess. Uh, He has spoken worldwide in a variety of universities as an apologist, uh, as an evangelist, uh, everywhere from Pakistan to Oxford University and throughout Canada. He's the author of a number of books, uh, past and present, uh, Searching for Truth, Why I Still Believe, and How Then Shall We Answer. He's also working on a quite an important book called Thy Kingdom Come, A Study of the Thought of a Modern Puritan. That will be forthcoming in the next few months. And also another book on education. Uh, So keep your eyes peeled for those. Resources will be downstairs. Whenever you do introductions that have a speaker with lots of books, it's, uh, it's a bit embarrassing for the speaker, quite frankly. Um, I think it's important, nonetheless, to uh, get a measure of uh, the speaker and to get a sense of uh, what God has done in this man's life. But I know that Joe would be happy if I, I just said this is a man who's happy to be used of God. Well, good evening, everyone. So good to see so many of you out this evening for our summer fellowship. And it really is the summer, isn't it? It is warm, but we shouldn't complain after a long, cold winter. And we're coming this evening to Ephesians chapter 1. Last week we had uh, Dr. Haken give us a magisterial introduction to this book. I don't quite know how he managed to do it in... 45 minutes to an hour, uh, and I'm really not quite sure how one is meant to expound an entire chapter of Ephesians in 45 minutes to an hour, but we're going to give it a shot this evening. So let's turn uh, in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to read God's Word uh, together. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as he has chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the Beloved in whom we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, 
wherein He has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He has purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who works all things after the counsel of His own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted, After that, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest or pledge of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love to all the saints, Cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints." And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under His feet and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that fills all in all. Okay, so now you have some sympathy with me, right? How do you... Uh, grapple with a text like that in just a few short minutes. I hope many of you were here last week to hear Michael's uh, overview of this uh, great letter, and that will help you uh, this evening. If if you weren't, it doesn't matter, but it will help you if you were there to position uh, where we start tonight. But I want us to consider the timeless relevance of this passage. One of my passions is that God's Word always has to be applied. It can't just be analyzed. And we can mine Scripture for beautiful doctrinal truths and theological uh, jewels, and yet still leave God's Word unapplied in our lives. It isn't just believing the formal authority of God's Word that matters. We evangelicals are very good at affirming the formal authority and inspiration of Scripture. Where we struggle is with its material authority. That's applying it into our lives. That's the challenge that the church faces, is not just reading and understanding God's Word, it's doing it. 
So I want to balance this evening, I hope, both analysis and application of this text. Now, today I was reading an article, just today, about the Anglican Church in England. And uh, I served in the Anglican Church in England for a number of years before I moved to Canada. This is what I read today. The present average age of members of the Anglican Church in England is now 61. That's the average age. At the recent General Synod in York, the church was warned that it was, quote, impeccably managing itself into failure, end quote. Impeccably managing itself into failure. In the last 40 years, the number of adult churchgoers has halved. Halved. And numbers of children have dropped by four-fifths in 40 years. That's a generation. The Reverend Dr. Patrick Richmond, Synod member from Norwich, told the meeting projections suggested the church would no longer be functionally extant, that's alive and functional, in 20 years. They see this as a quote, demographic time bomb, the time bomb that requires, quote, urgent national recruitment drive to attract more members, end quote. A national recruitment drive. It's like you're trying to get people to sign up for the Rotary Club. They see this uh, difficulty simply as a demographic problem and an advertising issue. And when I read that, what struck me was, where is the Christ of Ephesians 1 in that kind of thinking about the church? Where is the Christ of Ephesians chapter 1? Where is the potency of the power of the Holy Spirit of Ephesians 1? Where is the power of the gospel of Ephesians 1 in such a church? Because that's why the book of Ephesians matters, friends. This is not this series... You know, it's not just, let's have a nice study of the book of Ephesians. We've got nothing better to do on a Wednesday night. This letter was written to the churches in Ephesus. Real churches, real people facing real persecution, real difficulties, real challenges. The emperor cult. Statism and idolatry. That's the context into which Paul is writing. And this is the context into which the reader is reading our passage today. Where is there even a rudimentary understanding of the headship of Christ and the hope of the gospel if we fail to grasp the glorious calling and the position of God's church in Jesus Christ? That's what this chapter is really about. Well, I'll tell you what it is if we neglect it. It's a recipe for death and the impeccable management of failure. What a great expression. The impeccable management of failure or the Christ of Ephesians chapter 1. Just bear with me a couple more moments as I introduce this tonight. The leading historian Mark Knoll of Notre Dame after describing the collapse of the influence of Anglicanism on the public square in Canada due to what he called the decline of the informal establishment and the loss of any vision for Christendom in Canada, 
not to mention the uh, theological problems and internal disputes and so on. He wrote this. He said, by the 1940s, representatives of Canada's other churches, that is, non-Anglicans, were beginning to manifest considerable strength. They were represented by a host of conservative evangelical bodies, more recently countrywide associations like the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, begun the process of drawing locally vital evangelical bodies into some form of national cohesion. Yet although such efforts have become increasingly important, they have not affected the broader society as Catholics and older Protestants had once done. For various reasons, ethnicity, language, a passivity-inducing holiness theology, or a stultifying fixation on biblical prophecy, these other Christians have often been content to remain in self-contained social, intellectual, and cultural ghettos. And I think this is a statement that's well borne out by the condition of our urban centers in Canada today, as well as our corridors of power, where Christianity and Christians have really never been seen by people so irrelevant. Consequently, ours is a time when we desperately need a renewed vision for this church of the living God, which I think Paul is describing in Ephesians chapter 1. The Father of glory, an image of our Father, His purposes for His church needs to be recaptured. Praise and prayer that begin this great letter need to reinvigorate our hearts and the hope in Christ's authority and power has to be rediscovered in our time. And this is the essence of Pauline thought when you read Ephesians and Colossians. F.F. Bruce said, we heard last week, that Ephesians, he said, is the quintessence of Paulinism. That's a lovely statement. Ephesians is the quintessence of Paulinism. And as he awaits trial in prison, his thinking is not rested upon the all-conquering power of Nero and the all-pervasive influence of the Roman state. He doesn't even see himself as a prisoner of the Roman powers. He says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Of Jesus Christ. This Christ has all authority over all power. And Paul said, I am his ambassador. Albeit an ambassador in chains. He pens this letter then to the churches in Ephesus at the center of the emperor cult and worship of the emperor, which was, I haven't got time to go into it it this evening, but it was a vision of total statism. It was an imperial idolatry. Throughout history, throughout the ancient world, the priesthood and the state were invariably conjoined in ancient Egyptian, Babylonian, Greek, and Roman thinking. That's why there was a great image of Nebuchadnezzar set up that Daniel was required to worship. Worship of the king, the great shepherd, the emperor, the pharaoh. This was the location of divinity in pagan thinking. And we have actually a similar modern uh, corollary to this in the thinking of Hegel who said the state is God walking the earth. 
to a new church in such a context, Paul writes in this first chapter of the church as a place where the power and the glory of God is being manifested to all authority in heaven and in earth. This is a cause for praise and exultant prayer, which begins this letter. And the key to this victory in God's church, Paul shows us, is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's how I think Paul begins this letter. So let's take a closer look at it when we begin here with Paul's act of praise. He begins with this uh, customary salutation of grace and peace to the faithful, which is significant in itself. And then he begins with praise and thanksgiving. So in verses 3 through 14, Paul tells us what Christ, what God has done in Christ, and it hangs on verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Our faith and our life is centered then in the salvation of the Son, and so the epistle opens with this sense of gratitude for all that is ours in Him. Blessed be the God and Father. Now, that was a a, a traditional Jewish greeting, but Paul adds, blessed be not just God the Father, but the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the distinctly Christian aspect to what he's saying. This is the God who alone is worthy of worship, and it's through him that we're blessed with these spiritual blessings by the Holy Spirit. Now, friends, they are spiritual blessings, not because they are ethereal blessings. Now, this is really important, because really, that's how I understood this for many years, that spiritual blessings are ethereal, invisible, blessings that are really not that tangible. They're spiritual blessings. You just have to accept them by faith. But they don't really have much to do with this world and my experience in this world. They're spiritual blessings. Spiritual blessings. But what makes them spiritual is not that they are ethereal or invisible. What makes them spiritual is that they are communicated by the Holy Spirit. That's what makes them spiritual. They're not carnal. They're not from our resources. The blessings are through the agency of the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's what makes these blessings spiritual. And they are in Christ because... Christ is now seated in that place of authority and has sent His Holy Spirit to us. That, after all, was the purpose of the ascension, Jesus tells us. So He's going to send us one like Himself to be with us forever. So in verses 4 and 5, Paul then traces the origin of these blessings to the eternal purposes of God by which we were called out and appointed before creation itself. So he's backtracking now to the origin of these blessings. Just as God called out Israel for his purpose and his glory, he calls out his church out of a universal populace as those who are going to be incorporated into Christ. 
And this election is to a particular purpose, not to no purpose, but that we should be holy, set apart, blameless, ready for his purposes. Why? To the praise of his glory. And this predestinating and choosing, this glorious adoption, as we're told here, having predestined us, predestinated us, verse 5, to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, this adoption is in love, we are told. It's in love. It's a positive thing. Now, I could, of course, spend the entire evening delving into the subject of predestination, which Calvin said was a web from which the mind was completely unable to extricate itself, and so therefore I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on it, because I don't think I'm more capable than Jean Calvin. Uh, But the purpose of predestination is a positive purpose. It is in love that God has done it and called us and set us apart to His purposes. It is a mysterious doctrine to us because we cannot fully reconcile it to some of our understanding, some of our linear thinking, but it does guarantee that there is a purpose and a meaning to every single event in your life and mine because God's purposes, the counsel of God's will establishes the meaning and the relationship between every event in life. That's why Jesus could say, not a sparrow falls to the ground without my Father. Every hair on your head is numbered. The psalmist said, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now that kind of knowledge, Scripture reminds us repeatedly, is too wonderful for us. It's too high, we can't attain to it. But it is the wisdom and the predestinating purpose and power of God. And whenever predestination is joined to God's providence in our understanding, it does become, as Roger so helpfully said tonight already, a comforting doctrine. When we understand God's predestination in terms of his providence, that is the the nearness, the imminence, the immediacy of the presence of God in our lives, that he is with us. And in every situation and circumstance, and in Him we live and move and exist. That all things are governed by His all-wise and most holy providence. That makes predestination a comfort. If you're trying to work it all out philosophically and trying to be a Greek philosopher when it comes to this doctrine, you will end up in fatalism and in some degree of misery. God's predestination is in love and it is personal, not impersonal. And that's the only choice you have, friends. It isn't a choice between God's predestination and free will. I don't have an absolutely free will. I have the will of a creature. I have a derivative will. I'm not free to fly to the moon right now. I'm not free to be born again a second time. I'm not free to be 21 again. I didn't decide where I would be born, what year I would be born in, who my parents would be, what color I'd be, whether I'd be a man or a woman, how tall I would be. None of those things I controlled, and yet I don't feel violated by the fact that I was born a man 
oh, that really robbed me of my freedom. I don't think about it in those terms. God alone is truly, absolutely free in that sense. The choice is not between God's predestination and freedom. The choice is between God's personal predestination and an absolutely impersonal determinism, which is where most secular scientists and philosophers are at in their thinking. For there is not even the will of a creature. There is not even a derivative will. It is a comforting doctrine, even if it's mysterious to us. And we're assured in it of the certainty of our adoption. Now that means because it was from before creation that we were chosen in Him, that means that God isn't going to change His mind about you next week, next month, next year. Have a bad day and say, you know what, that Roger Bergs, he's really cheesing me off at the minute. I think he's out now. No. He doesn't change his mind. Now that's a comforting doctrine. That our adoption is not dependent upon my moods or any changing mood in God. No, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This adoption, this love stands behind it all. And in Roman law, the Roman law of the period, an adopted son enjoys the same privilege as the blood son. And so by grace, Paul tells us, we are now co-heirs with Christ. Wherein, he says in verse 6, we have been, uh, he has been made, uh, he has made us accepted in the beloved. Paul reminds us in the book of Romans, doesn't he? In Romans 8, 17, if children, then heirs. Then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So that tonight, because of our adoption, we are joint heirs with this Christ to whom all things has been given. And what is the aim of this plan of redemption? That God's mercy and grace will evoke unlimited praise to the praise of His glory. We're accepted in the beloved. It's interesting that Israel was often called the beloved. In the Septuagint, this phrase, the beloved, is applied to Israel as the servant and chosen people, the elect of God. Now Christ is spoken of as the beloved, and those in Him are the beloved. Of God. Then in verse 7, Paul lists some of the uh, blessings that flow from being in the beloved now. These blessings are in Christ and in the continuous tense. We, are, we have and are still having, still enjoying these great blessings, our redemption, that is, our emancipation, our ransom, through the cross of Christ that was foreshadowed in the Levitical priesthood, as we see in Leviticus 17. Forgiveness follows as a present reality for those who are co-heirs. And then in verse 8, we see that there is still more blessing, not just redemption and forgiveness, but wisdom, Sophia, wisdom and prudence that allows us to see all things in Christ and through Christ, who is the wisdom of God, Paul tells us. In him are hid, says Paul, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
The psalmist tells us, in your light we see light. So true wisdom and prudence is to see all things in terms of this Christ. What God has revealed in this wisdom concerns this mystery that Michael touched on last week. This theme of mystery that is repeated and recurs again and again in Ephesians. The mystery of his will in verse 9. Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. Notice that the purposes of God are not found in anything outside of himself. It's not something external that pressures God to a purpose. And the mystery is not like a puzzle. It's not an apocalyptic puzzle of Jewish literature. No, we are told that the unlocking of this mystery has now taken place in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is unveiling something of this amazing mystery to us. God's strategy has been revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. What was purposed in him has been made known. Now this was countering, of course, the Gnostic heresy that had appeared in Asia Minor, trumpeting a kind of secret hidden knowledge that there was still a hidden key, a hidden secret. That literally is the nature of occultism, of course, that there is something hidden that needs to be revealed as the key to power, to control, to life, and for the Gnostics, to salvation. Friends, there is still this Gnostic spirit with us in the church as well as in the secular world. You go into your local bookstore, you'll see books like The Secret, The Celestine Prophecy. And then you go to your Christian bookshop and you see The Lost Message of Jesus. It really has been lost, has it? The secret gospel of so-and-so, usually attached to one of the names of the apostles. The idea that somehow there is, it's good at selling books, of course, there is a hidden key somewhere out there that we've all been missing all of this time. That's not the kind of mystery Paul's speaking of. He says it's now been unveiled, it's been revealed, it's been unlocked in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's not new, it's very old. Before time was. And then in verses 10 through 13, we get further insight into the nature of this mystery revealed. In the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in whom we also have obtained an inheritance. Now, that word dispensation there has nothing to do with the recent approach to biblical interpretation called dispensationalism. I won't digress onto a discussion of that. Suffice to say, the term here simply means management or administration. The administration of a far-reaching, redemptive plan which concerns the government of the whole universe. Salvation history is seen by Paul here as unfolding in a series of times and seasons Glorious times which have now been revealed in the Messianic age in and through Jesus Christ, reaching its climax in the advent of the Lord Jesus, bringing us into the 
messianic age and of course on into the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus awaiting only now the consummation of all things. That's not seen in its fullness, but that's what the all things means here. All things in heaven and on earth finally subdued and subsumed under Christ. So the Christian era must run its course till the final consummation brings about the defeat of death itself. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28, Paul deals with that. The last enemy to be defeated is death. At the end, everything will be seen, Paul is saying here, as adding up into Christ, even though you don't see it now. You say, Joe, how is this possible? I don't see this great conquest, this great power of the gospel, this this all things coming under Christ. No, that's why we walk by faith, not by sight. The end, we're told that all things finally will add up into Christ. Now through a glass darkly. His preeminence and its universal recognition is going to restore the universal harmony of the created order. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 8, 18 through 21. And so the mission of Christ extends beyond humanity to the entire cosmos here. And these verses tell us that we have been chosen as heirs and appointed a heritage in that great consummation. That you and I have been appointed a heritage in this all things about which Christ speaks. Skevington Wood and James Boyce in their commentary on this say this, Israel was regarded as the Lord's inheritance and portion. The church as constituting the new Israel now enters into the same privilege. Galatians 3.29, Colossians 1.12. This apportionment is said to stem from the divine foreordination. So now we have both Jew and Gentile, the church of God, entering into this inheritance revealed in Jesus Christ. It's not that Christians have usurped a Jewish privilege. No, before time, don't forget where Paul is saying the origin of this plan is, that before time God allotted and apportioned this inheritance to his church as co-heirs of the Son. And our inheritance is no longer a strip of land in Palestine, it's the whole cosmos. In Jesus Christ, our Lord says, the meek shall inherit the earth. Paul in Romans 4 speaks of the cosmos as the inheritance of the people of God. And all this is done in terms of the total meaning established by God in verse 11, to the purpose of him who works all things. What does that leave out? Nothing. All things after the counsel of his own will. All things. The first to hope in him in verse 12 then are, I think here, the Jews who recognized the Messiah prior to the conversion of the Gentiles. Some scholars here argue that Paul was referring to the apostles here. I think the text actually is pointing in the direction of Jewish believers because of the context. 
and this too is for the praise of his glory, because he says, then these Ephesian Gentiles, he says, you also, verse 13, you also trusted after hearing the word of truth and being sealed by the Spirit. So in the gospel, the Gentiles are not second-class citizens. They're not an afterthought. They're not a parenthesis. They're not a second plan. They have a central place in the eternal unchanging purposes of God who works all things in terms of the eternal counsel of his will. And the proof of this is given in the sealing of the Spirit to the Gentiles. This effusion of the Spirit to Jew and Gentile alike is promised in the Older Testament, Jeremiah 31, for example. In fact, it's all over. And it's dramatically seen in Peter's ministry in Acts chapter 10. When the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius. And Peter, it dawns on him that the promise of the Spirit is not just for the Jew, but it's also for the Gentile. And the Spirit is the pledge or the promise or the guarantee of the full inheritance of everything that God has promised. So you and I who have been sealed with the Spirit are given the rubber stamp of God's full approval, the stamp of his total authority, that everything that he's promised here in Christ will be yours. And he's proving it to you by sealing us as his people by his spirit. It's the guarantee of our inheritance. Now in verses uh, 15 onward, we move into Paul's moving out of his thanksgiving into his great prayer of intercession in this second part here. It, uh, I think, naturally breaks down into that sort of a division. The news has come to Paul in Rome of the faith and love of the church in Ephesus, verse 15. He says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love to all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Here's the man of prayer praying for the church of God. Some of the churches who may have read this letter, if it was a circular letter, would have been known to Paul. Perhaps some individuals were not. But he tells them of his unremitting remembrance of their prayers, uh, remembrance of them in his prayers in verse 16. And he offers thanks and intercession to the Father of glory. A Hebraic expression that really identifies the essential nature and character of God. What is it that Paul was praying for them? Well, it was necessary, according to Paul, that they be quickened with spiritual power and spiritual wisdom for the situation that they as God's people are facing in Ephesus. He wants them to know God, and he wants them to know who they are in God, in Christ, more fully than they presently do. And so in verse 18, it is the eyes of the understanding or the heart, the seat of all of our judgment. That term heart there is the seat of judgment, the very center of our being. It's the eyes of the heart itself, the seat of all judgment, which need to be enlightened. And what is it that he wants them to see? That they might grasp, actually, all that God has made available to them 
as his church in Jesus Christ. And I think if we grasp hold of just a small percentage of what Paul wants his church, the church in Ephesus, to grasp a hold of, we would be a totally transformed people. That's why I began with that illustration about the church back in England, the Anglican church in England, and its relevance. Because Paul wants them to understand, he wants the church to understand something about who God is and who they are in Christ as the church. And we have three great matters Paul wants them to understand, and this is going to be the focus of the rest of my teaching tonight, their hope, their calling, and their inheritance. Their hope, their calling, and their inheritance. As uh, Skevington Wood puts it, he says he wants them to appreciate, quote, that they inherit all the wealth of God himself. And most of us just don't believe that. But that's what Paul is saying. That we inherit all the wealth of God himself. His evident desire is that the Ephesians may have this spirit of wisdom and revelation, their eyes opened first to grasp the hope of his calling. Now, when Christians talk about hope, more often than not, we're thinking about heaven. The hope of heaven. The final state. The hope of his calling. We naturally start to think about heaven. Actually, I don't think Paul's primarily got this in mind at all in this passage. It's part of it. The full inauguration of the kingdom of God. But the hope is centered in their calling. Yes, we have individual hope in Christ. Of course we do. But there is more. There is a corporate future that we have in Christ for time and eternity. For time and eternity. That Paul wants the church in Ephesus to understand. Paul's words here is a pledge of hope. It's already taken place. But it concerns our ongoing calling because it looks into the future. So the second thing he specifically has in mind is our hope that is centered in Christ and our calling in time and eternity And the task that God has for us, the God whose dominion shall never end. He didn't call us so that we just had a ticket to heaven so that we can rest on our laurels, put our feet up and say, isn't it great to be saved? Isn't it great to be promised this wonderful spiritual blessing? It's spiritual because the Holy Spirit has wrought it in us. Not because it's in Never Never Land. The church in Ephesus needed hope for time and eternity. And Paul centers it in their calling to be God's church, to be his people. We'll see what that calling is in just a moment. He wants us to be enlightened as well concerning the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, which speaks of the covenant joys and rewards and responsibilities that are ours now and for eternity in Christ, as Scripture calls us, a kingdom of priests unto God. And fourthly, Paul wants us to understand something remarkable, the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. 
the exceeding greatness of, not our power, his power to us who believe this. And that's what it takes. It takes believing this and applying it before we see his power at work. It's the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe in this Christ. St. Paul tells us that this is manifest most gloriously in the resurrection of Christ and ascension to the seat of authority, which Christ now has, we're told, above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. And literally, this simply means a power that is incomparably great. There is no possibility of comparison of this power and any other power. It is incomparably great, the exceeding greatness of His power to us who believe. And it's manifest through the resurrection and ascension and seat of authority that Christ has. And Paul piles the synonyms one on top of the other. He uses the terms here, power, strength, might. He's trying to convey, in all the words he knows, the vital power that is God's and now belongs to Christ and therefore belongs to the church. And he's trying to make the church understand that. The universal early church proof text, which I think is absolutely being alluded to here by Paul, in verses 20 through 21 and 22, put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, is Psalm 110, verse 1. And Scott read it to us already this evening. This exaltation of the Lord's anointed in Christ. This is what the psalmist says. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit you at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Sit you at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, I know that the allusions here are spatial, but the right hand is not primarily a place. It's a symbol of the total authority of Jesus. Remember how he begins the Great Commission? We often forget this when the Great Commission is cited. When you ask a Christian the Great Commission, they say, go into all the world and preach the gospel. But that's not how it begins. Jesus begins by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. That's how he starts. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about here. It's the heavenly realms here. Again, it's not outer space. It's not that, yes, that's great. The world's going to hell in a handbasket, but God rules in outer space. That's wonderful for us Christians, isn't it? He rules in the spiritual realm, but, you know, the world, no, no. Well, that's not what Paul is saying at all. It's all the realms of power and authority, even in the angelic conflict in which Christ rules and has total authority. Likewise, in verse 21, 
far above all principality is not a statement of dimension. One of my professors, actually, when I was in seminary, I started in Birmingham, there was a brief stay in Nottingham, and then later in Manchester. One of my professors used to say, God isn't up there, he's through there. He spreads undivided, he operates unspent. Paul isn't saying he's up spatially over somehow, like Yuri Gagur in the Russian cosmonaut who shook his fist at God when he couldn't find God behind the moon up there somewhere. So you're going to just find God in this spatial location? No. What is being said here is that Christ is superior to all things. Paul uses the words rule, arche, authority, exousia, power, dunamis. He is over all power, all authority, all rule, all things, all realms. Christ has full authority now. That is, Paul says finally, there is not a living title in heaven or in earth known to men or angels that is not now subject to Jesus Christ. Nowhere. You just think about that for a moment. This means finally that God has placed all things under his feet, verse 22. All things have been subordinated to Christ. Verse 22 reads literally, and God gave him as head over all things to the church. We're his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, I think Paul has in mind in this great statement, Psalm 8, verse 6. Psalm 8. You made him to have dominion, over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet. All things are under the feet of the God-man, Jesus Christ. I think uh, Skevington Wood and James Boyce are very helpful here. Listen to this. The psalmist affirms man's dominion on earth. Here Paul claims that Christ, as God's new man, has universal dominion. Man largely forfeited his status through sin, but through Christ, as the ideal man, he is restored to his proper dignity. So far from constituting a threat to the realization of true humanity, the Christian gospel provides the only means by which it can be attained. The church has authority and power to overcome all opposition because her leader and head is the Lord of all. If we believe just uh, 10% of that, we'd be a different church. So, let's ask ourselves, to whom has Christ been given? This Christ, who Paul's just described, who has he been given to? The one in whose hands has been all dominion has been placed, quite simply, the church. The church. Who is the church? The ecclesia. Those called out, chosen, elect, beloved, predestined. Called out to a purpose. 
It was the common term for the congregation of the Ecletoi, those assembled in terms of the public affairs of a free state or realm in the Greco-Roman world. That's what the term meant. Thus, the church is an international body, not an institution primarily, but an organism called out in terms of the public affairs of the kingdom of God and given here a universal jurisdiction because of Christ. Of course, we don't like this kind of talk in our modern period, do we? It's very politically incorrect to speak of a Lord of Lords and a King of Kings. Psalm 2 tells us, kings of the earth, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. A body of citizens called together by a divine herald who has total power, who is ascended on high, and it exists and functions properly, this church, only by virtue of its vital relationship to the risen Christ. And this is when the church falters and fails, because you know what? If you go and analyze the Anglican church back in England, for the most part, that risen Christ was jettisoned long ago. Not not across the board. I was part of the Anglican church in England. There is a true church there. But in large measure, these, this, this, this uh, halving of the adult attendance, this four-fifths of children, that's due to the jettisoning of this Christ. And wherever we see this Christ neglected, rejected, there the church no longer realizes who it is in Christ like we see in Ephesians 1. Our hope in Ephesians then, in chapter 1, concerns our calling in Christ as called out citizens of his kingdom for time and eternity. Not just a vague ethereal future, but for now in history, as God's church confronted with statism or our own form of emperor cult and persecution and marginalization and everything else that is facing us as the Canadian church, where even in our education system today, we're being told that our children must be indoctrinated without even us being allowed to withdraw them from objectionable classes. They must be taught a foreign faith and a foreign religion. Well, this is the context into which Paul still writes to the church. The riches of his inheritance is found in Christ, his covenantal inheritance of the whole earth under our King. And later in Ephesians, as we'll see in a few weeks, in Ephesians 3.10, Paul states that the unsearchable riches of Christ, the one through whom all things have been created, have now been revealed for the specific intent that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. To who? All power and all authority. That the wisdom of God now is being made known through his people as they live, declare, and serve King Jesus. How is this possible? Well, God is doing it in and through Christ. What's he doing? We're told in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, we've read it. He is gathering together in one, that is Christ, all things 
both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. That's why we pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. As it is in heaven. It is in him we have obtained this glorious inheritance. Now, this is, I think, what is being taught here in Ephesians 1, a critical foundation for a truly biblical theology. Here's a little bit of application for you in the last few minutes. I think we have here a vital foundation for truly biblical thinking because we are being reminded that all things are now under the authority and dominion of Christ, and the church has a central role under Christ our head as covenant men and women, as the Puritans used to say, to assert the crown rights of King Jesus. That's what our evangelical forebears said in this country too, if you read the history of 19th century Canada. To assert the crown rights of King Jesus over all authority and power and to recognize our inheritance in Jesus Christ. And that should not surprise us. You may be sat there thinking, this is all rather far-fetched. Sounds like a C.S. Lewis novel. Why should it surprise us that all things are ours in Christ and that the cosmos is our inheritance when this is what the Apostle Paul says to the church at Colossae in chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. This is what Paul says of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist or hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he will have preeminence. What does that leave out in which Christ is not to have the preeminence? In all things he must have preeminence. It's the same message as Ephesians 1. He's gathering all things into himself, under heaven and on earth, being subjected and subdued to the authority of Jesus Christ. It's the comprehensive nature of these statements that not a square inch of the universe, not an atom is outside the creative power, reign, rule, and dominion of Jesus Christ. Not just in heaven, friends, notice, but on earth. It's on earth. And Paul again reminds us that he is the head of his body, the church. Since he is the creator of all things, it should not shock us that he has come to reclaim all things. It's his property rights. He owns it anyway. He created it. He sustains it. And in his predestinating purposes, he governs it. So why should he not reclaim it? Now, I'm not preaching universalism. 
I'm preaching the subjection of all things, the subduing of all things to Jesus Christ, because willingly or unwillingly, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, to some people, this all sounds rather far-fetched. As his covenant people, though, we are the called-out ones, the ministers of his kingdom, and our task, like our Lord's, is dominion in terms of the word of God to bring all things into captivity to Jesus Christ. Everything. I believe that. And all things... Paul says, whatever you do, even the menial things, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. What is reinforced then is the doctrine of Christ and his church, that we're this called out body, and that as we move out into history and into the world, in terms of Ephesians 1, we do so with a supernatural power from beyond history. It's not dependent on you. It's not dependent on me. Christ says, when we walk in this, I will build my church. I will build my church. And hell itself cannot prevail against it. You know what my image of that text used to be? The gates of hell shall not prevail. It was that the gates of hell, like huge iron gates burning with flame, were pressing down upon the church, and they were just holding out the gates from being forced in by the devil. But have you ever seen gates advancing anywhere? Gates don't move. The whole purpose of a gate is that it's fixed. Otherwise, it's not a gate, is it? The image of the gates of hell is that the work of the kingdom and of the gospel is so pressing in against the dominion of darkness that hell itself is not able to withstand the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was making, he led captives in his train. He led captivity captive, triumphing over them, making an open spectacle of them at the cross. We're the people of the King of Kings. And for the early church, this meant a calling to reign in life, to govern their lives under God, their families, their communities. Until finally all men and women recognize and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. So Paul says to us, whatever our present circumstances may be, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us, called us, chosen us, predestined us. Romans 8.37. We are a kingdom of priests unto God. Heard it in Psalm 10. 110, Christ is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And we've been granted this remarkable responsibility. And Jesus, our Lord himself, as we've seen, restates this great commission to us to go into all the world. And quite literally there, he says in the great commission, discipline the nations. That's the Greek word. Discipline the nations. Disciple the nations. Bring God's discipline to the nations. Now, in our day, we are so accustomed to seeing and thinking about the church in retreat and defeat that considering our status in Christ from Ephesians 1, it would have been easy just to talk about predestination and the great consoling comfort that it is to our souls. 
But that's not the overriding purpose of why Paul talks about predestination here. It's because of the purposes and authority of God that we've been predestined in terms of his will and purpose and counsel unto this great glory and inheritance because of his power and his work. Doesn't it depend on what sort of a God you serve? Is your God a defeated God, a weak God, an impotent God? Think God's scurrying for a corner right now, wondering what to do with Canada? My God isn't. But if we can't be God's church governed by his word, how can we hope to impact a city, a community, a nation? We don't believe this, friends. How can we hope to impact our family? Our extended family, our community. It seems far-fetched to us to think in these terms. The Great Commission seems far-fetched because of the humanism and the secularization that's come into the church, because we see our churches becoming mosques and Hare Krishna centers and museums and cafes in the city, and church denominations becoming real estate sales boards. But our forebears in the 17th through 19th century rejected all of that. They fought secularization. They fought it. We say, well, let's accommodate ourselves. Let's go with the flow. Let's be one of the fish in the paddling pool. Let's join the rest. Let's not insist on our own little stream. Well, one of the key reasons for this is a loss of a fully robust biblical view of life that comes right out of Scripture. Even among the uneducated Christians in the 17th and 18th century, this was present because the church discipled and catechized believers, faithfully taught them the Word of God. And they believed that their vocations were sacred and were holy callings, that they were called out to this purpose to redeem all things in terms of Christ, that he had authority and power. Today, in many cases, the evangelical faith is a personalist spare time philosophy akin to golf, tennis, and yoga. And many studies conducted in North America have found that seven out of ten churchgoers have no relationship with their church at all outside of a Sunday service. Less than 2% tithe and biblical illiteracy is ripe, with many Christians barely reading their Bible once a month. And then we say, well, why is the church, you know, not doing very well? To such people, Christ is not the Lord whose name is above every name, who has total authority and who commands my obedience. We are to obey the gospel of God. We have this image of a poor, weak Jesus pleading at the heart of every, the door of every human soul, begging them for a place. He commands us to repent. He commands us to obey the gospel. And he commands us to apply his word. And walk in the blessing of it. One such retreat has been in the area of education and the widespread abandonment of Christian education by the church. Some 70 plus percent of all children who grow up in a Christian home in North America will abandon their faith by the age of 23, according to the most recent studies. You know what? 
This wasn't so in previous generations. The Puritans, quote, did not see Christianity as a spare time religious philosophy to help them cope with an angst-ridden world. To the contrary, their religious convictions brought suffering, persecution, imprisonment, death. They integrated their reformed doctrine with a consistent biblical worldview which offered practical application for every area of life. If God granted modern American evangelical Christians a new continent filled with wilderness, wild beasts and savages, and then allowed us to settle and form a new Christian nation there, we could not do today what our spiritual forebears did. Most Christians would say that it couldn't be done. The Bible doesn't give us a blueprint for building a Christian culture. Others would say it shouldn't be done. We're living in the last days, so why waste our limited resources? Therefore, it wouldn't be done because you don't polish brass on a sinking ship, end quote. Sobering thoughts, I think, from a Presbyterian pastor in America. How do we develop that vibrant perspective? Well, we have to begin not pragmatically, but theologically, and that's what Paul helps us to do in Romans 1. We have to start there. Do you really think the church in Ephesus, reading this, found it any easier to see the absolute total authority of Christ over all things as they were being persecuted? as the emperor was worshipped, as they couldn't own property. And yet they did. They grasped it. They took hold of it. And they transformed. I wish I had time for some historical survey. I don't. I've got to finish. The church took the commandments of Paul and the requirements of Scripture seriously, so much so that they were transforming an empire. Abandoned children, the Roman culture was an infanticidal culture, an abortionist culture, much like our own. And they would, uh, abortions were not effective in those days. They would just throw away the babies, expose them to death under the bridges, under the aqueducts in the ancient world. The Christians would go around, gather up these babies, adopt them into Christian homes, raise them as Christians, started schools, provided welfare, educated preached the gospel, started their own courts, so much so that when Constantine came to power, he said, the Christian courts of arbitration are the only courts that are functionally worthwhile, and he clothed all the bishops with the garb of a Roman magistrate, and that's why bishops wear all that regalia today. Did you know that? That is the dress of a Roman magistrate given to bishops by Constantine to hear and try cases, and they did so for hundreds of years throughout Europe. Go to London and see what the hospitals are called. Saint this, saint that, the apostle this, the apostle that, because the church built the hospitals. We built the schools. We built the universities. And justice spread throughout the known world. And that's what the early church did, a small group of 120 people, sealed by the Holy Spirit, believing Ephesians chapter 1. It is our calling as kings and priests to sanctify ourselves and the whole world as holy unto the Lord because he is gathering together all things in Christ. This is a vision, I think, of the church that we must recover in our time. That's precisely why 
I said to Michael Hakin, please give me Ephesians chapter 1 to deal with in our summer series. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all these spiritual blessings in heavenly places, we thank you for our Lord and Savior, who chose us in him before time began to a holy purpose, set us apart and sanctified us, and made us a kingdom of priests unto God, to serve his purpose to the praise of his glory, to glorify his name, and to rejoice in your salvation and your providential care as you bring all things to their true and proper end in terms of the counsel of your will. Give us faith, Lord Jesus. Give us hearts to believe, to know, and to realize in thought, word, and deed that there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And more than this, there is no other name. There is no rule, there is no authority, there is no power that has a name like the name of Jesus. Lord, stir our hearts with a recognition of the glorious inheritance that you have for your church for time and eternity. Revive our fortunes in our time. Renew your fame in our generation. Make your name great and make your name known in this city for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who died for us. And seal us with your spirit and fill us with your spirit that we might go out in power, knowing that all authority belongs to you and bringing the nations into subjection to Jesus Christ, that he may be all in all, fullness of him who fills all things in every way. We ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.